ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 61, Pope Vigilius. Or as Fry likes to say, Flagilius. Flagilius. Flagilius, but it's Vigilius. And after last week, are you prepared to actually deal with this man as Pope? No, he's a trash bag. He is a trash bag. So this is going to be a wild one. This is a Pope, actually, that when we started this show, I was very excited to do because he's relatively unknown, but his story is wild. And then when I started doing the actual research to flesh out the episode, it just kept getting wilder. And I am like, what? (laughs) We haven't had like a wacka, wackadoo Pope yet. Yeah, we haven't had, I mean, Damasus had a lot of those sort of wackadoodle characteristics. He, you know, massacred people. (laughs) I feel like he was more like a mobster and less like a crazy story. That is true. And this one is definitely a crazy story. So we're going to pop right into that. So Vigilius was born in Rome to an extremely well-off and aristocratic family. The Liber Pontificalis even says that his father, Johannes, was a consul, so very, very high up. However, the actual historical records that are legitimate and not Liber Pontificalis bullshit for the time don't actually show a Western consul called Johannes or John at the time, so many historians think that Vigilius' father might have been an honorary consul rather than an actual one. I didn't know they gave those out. Yeah, it's it's a little bit strange. It did happen occasionally for certain things, but it is very unusual. But it is still a high honor, so he is coming from a family that's pretty well regarded in that way. We also get from the Liber Pontificalis that Vigilius's brother, Reparatus, was also a notable figure in Roman politics because he was a senator who was among the hostages who were taken and sent to Ravenna by Vitiges during the siege on Rome. Procopius's History of the Wars adds that Reparatus was one of the only hostages to escape with his life after Vitiges sent an order in 537 to have all of the hostages slaughtered. So, we're starting off on a good note. His brother survived while everyone else died. Now, Side note on the Liber Pontificalis, because with Vigilius's entry, we have arrived at the first point within the Liber Pontificalis where historians believe we've entered the first continuation, in air quotes, on the original text. Like We know that the Liber Pontificalis was written by various authors over time, covering different time periods. But it's possible that somewhere in the Silvarius slash Vigilius overlap, All of that compiled as the original text was completed, and then Vigilius's entry and entries to follow were created later as an extension. This idea comes from Duchenne, who is one of the greatest editors of the Liber Pontificalis, and he also postulates that this is why, from this point on, there is an uptick in inaccuracies. Oh... Yeah, so the Liber Pontificalis is going to get less reliable. 
It was already crap. It was already crap. I mean, but you can you can definitely see a distinction point at this point. And I think, t- like, if when I look at it and go, oh, this is the first continuation, I think it probably happened halfway through Silvarius, because remember, we talked about his account being very strange, and all of a sudden it shifts tone and gets very dialogue-y. That is very much how Vigilius is, is as well, so I think that's kind of the point in which it happened. So, continuation of the Liber Pontificalis, and we're going to see moments in time where we see this happening. So, anyways... Vigilius entered the church to complete the family power spread, and in 531, he was ordained as a deacon by Pope Boniface II. This happens to be the same year that Pope Boniface also convened a synod and presented the clergy with his constitution to grant the Pope the authority to name their own successor, and he chose Vigilius to be that successor. And I think that Vigilius must have been pretty damn excited about the prospect of being the next pope. Until Boniface's constitution caused nothing but anger and resentment among the clergy and led to the pope retracting and literally burning his decree for that. Mm -hmm. My guess is that this was a pretty strong turning point for Vigilius. He went from being directly in line to be pope to having that go up in flames right in front of his face, literally. And then someone else gets elected. So it might explain a few things as we go along. I feel like this is his face. Yeah, it it is 100% the face of Vigilius in this moment. That is exactly how he's feeling. And, And that is exactly how he continues to feel as he serves as a deacon through the papacy of John II, and then when Aegyptus became pope, he started to maybe let it go a little bit and distinguished himself enough that Aegyptus appointed him to be his papal representative, the apocrisarius role that we've been talking about, to accompany him to Constantinople to try and convince Justinian to put an end to the Italian invasion. And this is where Vigilius actually starts to take a leading role in his own narrative, because Somewhere in that time that Vigilius was in Constantinople, he made a connection with Empress Theodora. We don't know how or why the two were initially connected, but we can assume that maybe Vigilius didn't share Aegyptus's fervor for, like, rooting out monophysites in the Eastern Church, or maybe he'd given her a reason to think that he might be more sympathetic to her favorites. And because of this... Theodora thought that Vigilius would be a very convenient successor, and that as the next pope, he would be her inside source to accomplish what she wanted, which was to readmit Monophysites to communion and bring about a toleration or a unification of the church in their favor. And then as they're starting to kind of plot and scheme and build this relationship, Aegyptus dies, and suddenly succession is a very, very imminent thing. And and once again, it is important to acknowledge that the primary sources and later sources that we consult for all of our papal history are so hostile towards Theodora. So whenever we tell stories like this, especially her role with Vigilius, It's hard to suss out what her actual involvement is, or where the historical narrative actually represents who she was. This is an exceptionally powerful woman who started life much further down in status 
and then rose through the ranks, like, by marrying Justinian to have authority over men. So she was inevitably resented or full-on hated by our sources. And this is important to bring up again, because she's going to play a very, very direct role in this story, just like she did last week. So we need to give due to modern scholarship and the understanding that we're only seeing a strongly biased perspective here. That being said, in order to understand Vigilius, we have to understand what part the sources say Theodora actually played. So when Aegyptus died in Constantinople, and the Apostolic See was suddenly vacant, Theodora committed Vigilius to a plan. If he would undo Aegyptus's deposition of Anthemis, the bishop of Constantinople, as well as several other Monophysite bishops that we mentioned last week, she would use her imperial influence to make him pope, and she'd give him 700 pounds of gold to make the whole process easier. It's a pretty sweet deal. And then he either set out to leave Constantinople to reach Rome, and didn't make it in time. Before he left Constantinople, the news started to come in. But either way, he was too late, because a new pope had been elected, and it wasn't him. It was Silverius. This is probably another moment where he went, made that face. He's starting to feel a little dejected. So this is where the plot to have Silverius deposed started. And this, this might have actually been where the whole thing started to form, or after Silverius rejected Theodora's requests about the Monophysite bishops. And this is when Theodora writes the letter to Belisarius, who's currently preparing to invade Rome, with the instructions to depose Silverius in favor of Vigilius. So then Vigilius left Constantinople for Rome to deliver the letter. And Alvin Butler, remember from last week, has Belisarius saying, upon receiving this letter, quote, The Empress commands, I must therefore obey. He who seeks the ruin of Silverius shall answer for it at the last day, not I. Belisarius entered Rome on December 9th of 536 and was welcomed into the city by Pope Silverius and the Senate, who wanted to save the city more devastation, and Vitiges and the Ostrogothic forces barreled down from Ravenna to put the city under siege, as we talked about last week. And by March 537, the plan to have Silverius deposed was in full swing. This is where that forged letter appears that is allegedly from Silverius to Vitiges, negotiating to, like, leave a gate open for the Ostrogothic forces to invade and take Belisarius head-on. So, Silverius was apprehended, stripped of his ecclesiastical vestments, forced into monk's clothes, and exiled. And last week, we read several slightly differing accounts to look at how this played out for Silverius, and now we're going to revisit a couple just to see Vigilius's part in it. So the Liber Pontificalis is pretty hostile towards Vigilius. First, they have Vigilius coming to Silverius to persuade him to accept the Empress's commands rather than to overtake him. But when he refused, Vigilius was the one who told Belisarius that Silverius was writing to plot with Vitiges. And then when Silverius is arrested and being deposed, it's Vigilius who, quote, took Silverius as if in his own charge and sent him into exile, and fed him with the bread of tribulation and the water of bitterness. 
That is a fantastically dramatic line. I feel like the next time someone does something I don't like, I'm going to tell them that they're feeding me with the bread of tribulation and the water of bitterness. This is literally just that picture again. (laughs) It is. But now he's doing it to Silvarius. The most detailed account is in the Breverium of Liberatus of Carthage, and it definitely paints Vigilius as an ambitious plotter, schemer, and murderer who only came to Rome to get rid of Silvarius, become Pope, all the while promising Theodora exactly what she wants to hear. And so neither of those sources are casting Vigilius in a good light, and no source is claiming that he's innocent. Keep that in mind. He seems awful. He does seem awful. But now, with Silvarius deposed and gone, Vigilius was consecrated as the new pope on March 29th of 537. But he wasn't actively accepted by the clergy of Rome as the legitimate pope until after the news of Pope Silvarius's death, which was after Silvarius was ordered back to Rome by Justinian, and then Vigilius had him intercepted and then sent to a harsh exile on a deserted island, which had led to his death. But now, now that Silvarius is dead, and Vigilius is the undisputed pope, the first thing that he does when he comes into his own is to renege on all of the promises that he made with Theodora. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, it's not like she didn't just depose someone for not being on her side, but let's go, great, I have this position now, I'm not going to do anything that I promised you that I would do. So, when Theodora wrote to the Pope to make good on the promises he had made to readmit Anthemis to communion and restore him to the Patriarchy of Constantinople, the Liber Pontificalis gives us Vigilius's reply. Far be this from me, Lady August. I spoke before time wrongly and foolishly. Now I do assuredly refuse to restore a man who is a heretic under the anathema. Although unworthy, I am now the vicar of Blessed Peter, the Apostle, as were my predecessors, the most holy Agaptus and Silvarius who condemned him. So I'm now on the level of holiness of the man that I just inadvertently or indirectly murdered, and now I'm too good for you. I don't like it. (laughs) You don't like it because he schemed and didn't follow through with it, or because he's, like, double scheming? I wouldn't be friends with him. (laughs) That is fair. I don't think he would be a good person to be friends with. So as you can imagine... Theodora's not happy. She is having, like, a full-on Yzma moment when she finds out that Cusco's not dead. I feel like we've made Cusco references before, but that's what I picture in my head. She is just so angry. And Vigilius is doubling down. He goes from just denying his promises to Theodora and decides, no, I'm gonna take this one step further and make an active stand against monophysitism. That thing I pretended to be super sympathetic to. So, we see this in two letters that he sent in 540. One is to Menes, the new bishop of Constantinople, and one to the emperor. And both letters lean heavy on defending Ephesus and Chalcedon, the two councils that are always contentious, as well as the decisions of his predecessor popes, rejecting any compromise with monophysitism, like with the Henoticon, 
And of course, he makes it very strong in his letter that he supports Aegyptus's deposition of Anthemus. And just for a hot moment when they get this letter, there is nothing that the Eastern Empire was going to do about it. Because of the plague. Oh. Yes. And yes, this is the plague of Justinian that happened in 541 and 542. The plague of Justinian. I don't know that one. It's the first recorded pandemic of Yersinia pestis, a.k.a. the bubonic plague. Ooh. Yeah, it's its first run through Constantinople and the Eastern Empire. It is said to have killed between 25 and 50 million people. I'm brushing past this gently because we don't have a whole lot of time to go into the plague of Justinian now. But oh god, it's so bad, and Vigilius gets really lucky in that moment that the emperor and the empress cannot come at him. And before we run away with the rest of his crazy life story, we have a couple brief things to give Vigilius credit for in terms of actually being a pope in Western affairs. So we're going to cover them now before we start to get lost in the drama. So on March 6th of 538, he wrote a letter to Caesarius, who is still the Bishop of Arles, about the Frankish king of Austrasia. There's a lot going on in former Gaul slash Central Europe at the moment, and we'll get there. So he writes a letter about this Frankish king, Theodobert, who was to undergo a period of penance for marrying his brother's widow. Remember, remarrying a you widow is a do no-no. That, I guess, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, and and, and Theodobert was a, a bit about that bigamy, so he was like, I'm going to do it anyways. So here Vigilius is doing his popey part to reinforce the norms and institutions of the sacraments, and he also might have bestowed a pallium on the bishopric of Arles as a mark of honor for the vicariate. Not to Caesarius, but to his successor, Oxanus, and then his successor, Aurelian. So, good relationships with the bishops over in former Gaul, reinforcing sacraments with Theodobert. And, and this is a wise move politically, as well as for church discipline and hierarchy, because it helped the papal representatives have a greater sense of prestige, and therefore more influence with the rising Frankish kings like Kildebert. We're going to come back to this whole Frankish Empire in time and give it a whole look. But for now, we just need to know that things are happening over there. Vigilius is making some effort to keep relationships between the kings and the church very positive, And it, it's all going to go places. Also, in June of the same year, he sent a decretal to the Bishop of Braga in Portugal, who was called Pro-Futurus. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd like that. Or... Profiturus, I suppose you could say. Not better. No, it's definitely pro-futurist. So he sent him a, a decretal on various aspects of church discipline, like institutions of baptism and penance and reconsecration of churches. So there is some active engagement on the part of Vigilius, and we need to just tick that box. So box is ticked. Good, we've ticked it. Check. And now the plague finally stopped ravaging the East, and Emperor Justinian still desperately wanted to unite the entire empire under him. You know, an entire empire unified under a single emperor and a single religion. 
And so he was still focused on the conundrum of how to reconcile the Monophysites with the Orthodox Church. And so he decides he's going to start with Origen. Because apparently everyone does. Do you remember Origen, our speculative theologian? From a million years ago. Yep. So in 543, Justinian declared that Origen was, yes, in fact, a heretic, and issued an order that all of his writings should be burned. At the time, this itself was contested, but not extremely controversial. But in response to this decree, the Bishop of Caesarea, Theodore Ascidus, who was apparently an adherent of Origenist theology, attempted to deflect the emperor's attention on Origen by pointing out that if he was looking to unify the church, maybe his best attempt would be to condemn theologians of the Antiochian school, aka the line of theology that had ended up inspiring Nestorius. So this bishop is saying, hey, don't look at Origen. How about you look at the guys who inspired Nestorius? Because by coming down harder on the Nestorian two-person Christology, he could potentially bring the Monophysites around, since Nestorianism as heresy is one of the only things that both Monophysites and Orthodox clerics can agree on. It makes sense. It's a, it's a wise deflection on the part of this bishop. And with the help of his advisors, Justinian takes this advice and comes up with three writers that the Monophysites opposed, all of whom were dead, and therefore not immediate sources of hostility, who had, in some way in their writings, professed or supported a two-nature Christology. And these three writers and their texts would come to be known as the Three Chapters. And Justinian would issue an edict condemning these writings, expecting the Eastern bishops and all of those of the Western Church to just agree to do the same because the view in these writers' works is very Nestorian. So, this is a little bit complicated, but we're going to go over this in some detail because it's heavily prevalent to the rest of this history, but we're going to try to not get too bogged down in the very technical detail. So the three chapters that are getting anathematized by Justinian as Nestorian two-person Christology are Theodore, Bishop of Mopsuestia, and his writings, the writings of Theodoret, Bishop of Cyrus, and a letter from Ibis, Bishop of Edessa. So those are the three. So first off, Theodore of Mopsuestia was a teacher of Nestorius. So, in a way, he's in part responsible for this Antiochian school of thought, which was the theology that distinctively separated the divine logos of Christ and the human Christ. So we're all coming back to this, whether God has one nature or two natures, or as two separate persons. We're in this two separate persons model. His writings and theology had already been condemned at the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus and at Chalcedon, but he had never personally been anathematized till now. He's, he's dead, but his writings have been condemned, and now he's personally being condemned. So that's 
Theodore of Mopsuestia. Theodoret, the Bishop of Cyrus, was also of the Antiochian school and was a friend of Nestorius and a potential student of Theodore. So these people are both directly tied to Nestorius. Now, as such, Theodoret doesn't ever overtly condemn Nestorius's dogma, even though it's apparent that he didn't agree with everything that Nestorius said. He also wrote against St. Cyril's anathemas and was excluded from the Second Council of Ephesus for that and was excommunicated at that council for his epistle against Cyril and his defense of Theodore and another Nestorian called Diodorus of Tarsus. There's so many things that sound like Dioscorus. Theodore things. Lots of Theodores coming. We even have a Pope Theodore coming. And so many Ets. Yes, lots of Ets. I'm suffering. <laughs> well, we're going to get through it and it'll make as much sense as it's going to. All right. So Theodoret. So far, he was a friend of Nestorius. He went after Cyril. He was excommunicated at the Second Council of Ephesus. However, at the Council of Chalcedon, he was restored as Orthodox. But he's being condemned now because Justinian argued that his writings against Cyril and against the Council of Ephesus were still worthy of anathema. So this guy has been condemned before and has been restored and is now being condemned again. And finally, the third, Ibis, Bishop of Edessa, was also a student of Theodore. And Ibis was at the First Council of Ephesus in 431 and had written a letter to Maris, the Bishop of Hardisher in Persia, describing the council and what had happened in the two years after the council in a very exasperated or, like, hostile tone. So he's writing to his bishop friend, and he's describing this council, and he's describing the fallout, and he sounds really annoyed about it. And so they're looking at this letter as hostile. And it also condemned Cyril as a heretic. He was deposed in the Second Council of Ephesus, but at the Council of Chalcedon, just like our last guy, he was restored. And not only was he restored, that letter that was hostile was read out at the council exactly, and the bishops declared it orthodox. So he is, like, 100% been restored. Until Justinian decides that, no, you're going to be condemned now. So hopefully that made at least a little bit of sense. Because this is where things start to get complicated. <sighs> Even worse. So these writings are on the two-nature side of Christology. That's how we kind of have to just chunk them in there. So in most ways, they go against the orthodox Chalcedonian definition of the hypostatic union. So this would qualify them for anathema, generally speaking. However, like we've actually seen at the Council of Chalcedon, Cyril's anathemas were often misunderstood as being too one-natured, too monophysitic, and a whole movement had cropped up out of his writings, that miaphysitism that was kind of halfway. So it wasn't entirely unusual for other theologians, especially at the time, to criticize his doctrine. 
So the two men, Ibis and Theodoret, who had criticized Cyril, had been restored after initially being excommunicated. So the sudden condemnation for them, again out of nowhere, is out of place. What's more, though Justinian was using this to come down hard on the Nestorian side of the Christological scale, he's not doing the same thing on the other side. He's, he's like, okay, you know what, we'll just come down hard on the two natures. But he's not coming down anywhere on the extreme Monophysite side, so he's not coming down on the one nature. If he wants to be Orthodox, he should be coming down on both of them. So this starts to concern the Orthodox Church, because it starts to look like Justinian is finding a way to distance himself from Chalcedon, which makes them nervous because everyone has tried to undermine this council forever, and now the emperor looks like he's doing the same thing. Oh, yeah, you don't want that. Yeah, it's it's basically another Hanoticon situation where it's like really leaning Monophysitic, but trying to look like this is something that the whole church should get on board with. We gotta take him out of the diptychs. Exactly. And even the Patriarch of Constantinople and several Eastern bishops were really hesitant about signing their assent to this condemnation of these three chapters. And historian Francis Joseph Bacchus postulates they only signed it because they were under duress by Justinian. So like, sign it, agree, because we need the West to do the same. But in the West, the concern was even greater, and there's an outright hostility towards anything to do with this weird condemnation that's come out of nowhere. And it was seen as a direct threat to the authority of the Council of Chalcedon, yet again. And this very clear sentiment of the Western churches was pretty prevalent, and prevalent enough that there's no way that Vigilius as Pope could have just embraced this new decree by the emperor for peace, even if he had wanted to. His papacy is already on a rocky boat. He can't just suddenly go, oh, but the emperor says we're condemning these three chapters. I'm totally on board because they'll just huck him right out. And Rome will erupt into a thousand different pieces. Does that make sense? Does that make the three chapters make any sense? Yeah, I suppose. As much as it needs to for this episode. They're being condemned for being too Nestorian, even when these documents, most of them have been condemned and then uncondemned in the past. So since Vigilius refused to confirm the condemnation of the three chapters, the emperor felt that perhaps he and the pope needed to have a face-to-face -face conversation in order to work things out. So, on November 22nd of 454, on the feast day of St. Cecilia, while Vigilius was performing ceremonies at Santa Cecilia in Trastevere, soldiers busted in and arrested him before the services were concluded. Oh boy. He was taken directly to the port and put on a ship headed for Constantinople. So the Pope is being kidnapped. Pope napped. Yeah. So apparently the order for his arrest came from Theodora and said, quote, only if he is in the Basilica of St. Peter, refrain from arresting him. But if you should find Vigilius in the Lateran or the palace or in any church at once, put him shipboard and bring him hither to us. 
If you do not, by him who liveth forever, I shall have you flayed alive. Why are we flaying so many people this week, Bree? <laughs> well, that is for our Patreon listeners to enjoy. What if we did, we can have our, our knight skin? <laughs> well, I mean, these Imperial Guards would definitely need their knight skin if they hadn't followed Theodora's orders. But they did not find him in St. Peter's. They did not make that scene. They found him at Santa Cecilia, so they went, Great, let's apprehend him and put him on a ship. And that's exactly what they did. Unfortunately for Vigilius, the people of Rome were were less than sympathetic to the fact that he was being kidnapped. And at this point, they pretty much blamed him for the incredible hardship that Rome was facing. You know, Rome is still completely under siege, now under the new Ostrogothic king called Totila, since Vitiges had been taken captive to Constantinople. And when Vigilius had initially arrived in Rome to become the next pope, he'd written to the emperor to send some aid to the starving citizens of Rome. And either Justinian hadn't been interested, or the ships had been captured by the Ostrogoths and never made it to the city. So the famine, the siege, and the chaos of shifting leaders have all hit Rome very, very hard. And a lot of them felt that the way that Vigilius had become Pope, murdering Silvarius, was a cause of their misfortune. So when he gets kidnapped, they're like, oh boohoo for you. We have the Liber Pontificalis account to tell us what happened portside when Vigilius was forcibly put on a ship. Quote, The Romans saw that the ship in which Vigilius was seated had begun to move, and then the people commenced to throw stones after him, and sticks, and dirty vessels, and to cry out, Your hunger go with you! Your pestilence go with you! You have done evil to the Romans! May you find evil where you go! They're not real sad about the Pope being kidnapped and sent away. There is another segment just preceding this in the Liber Pontificalis, which gives us more insight into what the people of Rome held against Vigilius. What I'm going to quote from you is apparently a letter that was sent from the people of Rome to the Empress. So this is, this is why they're throwing sticks and stones and yelling at him. Quote, we accuse him to your holiness, for he has done ill to your servants, the Romans and to their people. We declare him to be a murderer, for he abandoned himself to rage and struck his notary a blow which felled him straight away to his feet where he died. Also, he gave his niece Vigilia to the consul Asterius, son of a widow woman. Then making an occasion, he had Asterius seized by night and beaten until he died. Why? Yeah. So, the footnote added by later historians says there's no account of the accusation against Vigilius, and we know nothing about the incidents herein mentioned. But either way, they're basically saying he beat one of his notaries to death in a fit of rage, and then he married his, his niece off to someone and then had that guy arrested just because. So it's pretty clear that the people of Rome don't hold Vigilius in high regard, and they're not going to raise a rabble to stop him from being taken. Rabble, 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 rabble. Yeah, exactly. So his ship is going to set off. No one's going to stop them. It leaves Rome and harbored in Sicily for a time. And apparently while in Sicily, Vigilius actually conducted some ordinations. 
and then he reaches Constantinople by the end of the year, or in early January. And according to historian Warren H. Carroll, when they arrived in Constantinople, Vigilius told his captors, quote, This is the just punishment for what I have done. You may keep me in captivity, but the blessed Apostle Peter will never be your captive. So, when he arrived, despite basically being a captive, the emperor welcomed him with honor. The emperor figured that a good reception might ease the pressured approach that was coming for him and get him to assent to this whole three chapters thing and to get him to assent to Theodora to restore Anthemis. But Vigilius refused, as he had continued to do, and instead of just refusing to restore Anthemis, he excommunicated the new bishop of Constantinople, Menes, the one who had been consecrated by Aegyptus, for accepting the edict that condemned the three chapters. So he has come into Constantinople basically being kidnapped, and he is starting off on a hard line, like, no, I am not going to do this thing. However, the pressure against him was ongoing and increasing, so Vigilius vacillates a lot during this time, so he actually at one point will undo the excommunication of Menace, and then redo it, and then undo it, and then redo it, and then undo it. So, it's a bad time for the Pope Man. The diptychs, all over again. It's so many diptychs. The Liber Pontificalis gives us a scene from this time. Quote, Then for two years there were dissensions over Anthemus the Patriarch, how Vigilius had promised and had pledged with his hand to restore him to his place. But Vigilius would not yield to them, but preferred to die virtuously than to live. And Pope Vigilius said, quote, quote within a quote, I perceive that it was not the devout princes Justinian and Theodora who summoned me to them. Rather, I know today that I have met Diocletian and Eleutheria. Do with me as you will. I am receiving the reward of my deeds. Thereupon, one struck him in the face, saying, Murderer, do you not know to whom you speak? Do you not know that you slew Pope Silverius and killed the son of a widow woman with kicks and blows? So they're coming at him with the same accusations that the people of Rome had, that he had killed one of his assistants and obviously had been on the plot to kill Silverius. So by April of 548, they had worn down Vigilius's resistance, and he published a solemn decree called a Judicatum, condemning the three chapters. So they have gotten him to consent to this. He anathematized all of the writings of Theodore of Mopsuestia and any who defended him. He anathematized some writings of Theodoret that went against St. Cyril and the letter of Ibis to Paris the Persian. He had assented to basically everything that they wanted. But he also stated very clearly in his Judicatum that this in no way discredited or critiqued the decisions that had made at the Council of Chalcedon. Because remember, they had basically declared that the two who had been anathematized in the past were in fact orthodox, and now he's saying, no, we're anathematizing them again. But somehow this doesn't go against Chalcedon, guys. Seriously, it's all good. Do you want to take a guess of how that goes down in the West? I mean, I can't imagine it going well. Eamon Duffy, the historian who wrote the book Saints and Sinners, 
describes the reaction as volcanic. Whoa. That is about as accurate as it comes, because the Pope is almost universally denounced as a traitor for this act. So, the Pope is flooded with letters condemning his judicatum from bishops who had otherwise supported him, even though he wasn't popular. Even though he's a piece of trash. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so even the bishops who had decided to look past the fact that he was a piece of trash are now writing him and going, what are you doing? Like, Thaddeus of Milan, the Bishop of Arles, the Bishop of Tomi. There is even a council called in Africa that literally decides to excommunicate the Pope from the church if he won't retract his decision in full. And he doesn't, so they actually do excommunicate him in 515. So now he is excommunicated from the African church. Bishops and the clergy in Rome are horrified and they also repudiate Vigilius and the Judicatum. The situation gets so bad that even Justinian, who is so happy that he has worn the Pope down to give him what he wants, realizes that his newly won West, that he just got back to the Empire, is going to tear itself apart over this Judicatum if he doesn't do anything. So he actually gives Vigilius permission to withdraw the Judicatum, but only on the condition that he secretly commit himself to the Emperor that later on, when things are a little bit less explosive, that he'll issue a new condemnation for the three chapters. So, like, okay, we see that this decision we've made is making everyone explode. Let's retract that, but you have to secretly promise that when things are calmer, you're going to do it again. Not a good strategy here, guys. And by the way, right in the middle of all of this mess, Empress Theodora dies. So, she's played such a huge part in this story that it's prudent to at least acknowledge that she's now gone. But this does not make anything easier for Vigilius. In the wake of this chaos, The emperor and the pope agree that an ecumenical council is the only way to go to actually properly deal with this three chapters controversy. It's only going to be through a thorough examination and a unified church that anyone's going to come to a conclusion that has any chance of being accepted by both the eastern and western churches. If they don't do this together, it's not going to happen. No one's ever going to agree. And yet, No council was immediately called, even though they go, yes, this is what we need to do, they're not having it. And this is because Vigilius wanted a council to be held in Sicily, but Justinian demanded that it be in Constantinople, and so the more the Pope prevaricated and stalled making council plans, the more it became clear that a council wasn't actually going to be the answer because they can't even decide where to have the council to make it fair. The church is way too divided on this issue, and even though Vigilius had withdrawn his judicatum, now all of the bishops in the West are super on edge and suspicious, so it's not like Justinian is going to win them over anytime soon. Justinian gets tired of waiting, and in July of 551, he wrote his own personal condemnation edict for the three chapters, 
and disseminated it publicly by posting it directly to the church doors in the city. So just like full-on Martin Luther style, ironically, just bangs it right on the churches of Constantinople. And administrative officials approach the Pope with this new edict and press him to sign it because look, this came from the emperor. Look, this is, this is the final word. Will you just sign it? But Vigilius, now with the support of his envoys, a man called Pelagius, Datius of Milan, who, have, who has come to see him, and several others, he, again, refuses to sign it, and once again decides, you know what, if Justinian's going to push for this, I am going to re-excommunicate the Bishop of Constantinople, and all of his clerics, and any other administrators who go along with Justinian's edict. So, you know, he's making a power move again. And the Pope, realizing that having done this, he was pretty much done for, all he could do at this point was to break off all negotiation and communication with the Emperor and get the heck out of Dodge, because they were going to come for him. And then he looks behind him and sees that the Imperial troops are already coming for him. Like, literally, he looks behind him and the soldiers are right there, and they're ready to apprehend him. So he flees. He attempts to seek sanctuary in the Basilica of St. Peter. He gets inside, and he takes a breath, thinking that for just a moment he was going to be safe. And then the soldiers kick open the doors and charge right at him because sanctuary be damned. Wow. So Vigilius throws himself at the altar, wrapping his hands around the column as the soldiers gain on him, and finally reach him. They then proceed to try and drag him off this column by his limbs, his clothing, his hair, and his beard. And his beard. Yeah, they Ow. are pulling the Pope off of this column by his beard. That sounds like it would hurt. And then the column, he, they don't actually succeed here until the column breaks. Oh my gosh. Shoddy Roman architecture. Byzantine. Shoddy Byzantine architecture. So when the column breaks, they succeed in dragging him out. In his book, Italy and Her Invaders, by Thomas Hodgkin, he adds, In the scuffle, the pillars of the altar were broken, and the altar itself was only prevented by the interposed hands of the ecclesiastics from falling on the Pope's head and ending his pontificate and his sorrows in one blow. So his head was almost crushed by this giant piece of marble when the column broke. Sore beard, squished head. Sore beard, sore hair, being pulled by his arms and legs and clothes and everything else. And then the column breaks and gives out on him, so... This whole dramatic event is well-sourced. Vigilius will write about it himself in the Encyclica, and letters from Italian clerics to Frankish ambassadors recount the event. Theophanes mentions the event in his chronicle, and the Liber Pontificalis adds a little bit more. Quote, He then fled to the Basilica of St. Euphemia and laid hold of a column of the altar, but he was dragged away from it and cast outside the church, and a rope was put about his neck, and they hauled him through the whole city until evening, and then thrust him in prison and gave him a little bread and water. 
So, this account we know isn't entirely true. Because we know that as the Pope is literally being dragged out of the church, the crowds in the streets around them are absolutely scandalized. And unlike in Rome, when Vigilius was kidnapped and forced on a boat, this time, the mob is prepared to do something about it, and mob pressure forced the soldiers to leave the Pope alone. They're like, let go of him, that is the Pope, what are you doing? Like, outrage is so widespread after this incident that Justinian has to have his honored military general, Belisarius, personally apologize to the crowds for what happened. Vigilius then met with Belisarius and other appointed senatorial administrators at the palace, but only after they allegedly swore on a piece of the Cross of Calvary an oath of his safety. So he is not meeting anyone. They literally just dragged him out of there. He was only released by mob pressure, and he's not meeting with anyone until they swear on the truest of true crosses. But even after this meeting, Vigilius was harassed and insulted and pressured, and he knew very quickly that he had escaped last time by the skin of his teeth, and he was not safe. So he waited until nightfall and slipped out of a window, which, by the way, it said that Vigilius was pretty fat, so this is a feat in itself that he managed to squeeze himself through a window. I mean, when you're desperate. Yeah, it, it would have been like a full-on comedic moment, but... So he gets out of the window, and he escapes across the Bosphorus, reaching Chalcedon, where he took refuge in the Basilica of St. Euphemia, the church where the Council of Chalcedon had met. This is a wonderful little piece of PR symbolism. The whole three chapters controversy is attacking the Council of Chalcedon. Now the Pope has been physically attacked, and he is seeking refuge in the church where the Council of Chalcedon has met. It's wonderful. And this is where he writes his encyclica on February 5th of 552, professing all of his mistreatment at the hands of the emperor and his troops, condemning and excommunicating Justinian and the eastern bishops who supported the condemnation of the three chapters, and calling on his western bishops and supporters to push the emperor to undo his errors. I'm going to read you a little piece of this. Quote, for no private or pecuniary reason I have sought shelter in this church, but solely in order to avert the scandal to the church which is being perpetrated before the whole world. If the emperor is determined to restore peace to the church as she enjoyed it in the days of his uncle and pious predecessor, I need no oaths, but come forth from my asylum at once. If this be not his intention, oaths are also needles, for I shall not leave the Basilica of St. Euphemia. Here, just kind of where we are in the story, I have to use a quote from Eamon Duffy's book, Saints and Sinners. He says this, Had Vigilius died at this point, the scandals of his earlier career might have forgiven him for the sake of his heroic stand in defense of the Chalcedonian faith. But he doesn't die here, so he doesn't get to die a hero. And things are going to get worse. Are they going to destroy more buildings? they're going to destroy a lot of stuff. So instead of staying where he is and making this heroic stand, Vigilius returns to Constantinople to make good with Justinian 
coming back to the Palace of Placidia on June 26th of 552, with Pelagius, his papal nuncio, after Justinian had sent him a peaceful envoy in Chalcedon to ask for forgiveness and resolution. It helped, too, that at this time, Menace, the Bishop of Constantinople, who had been excommunicated and re-brought in, and this is the guy who he's excommunicated and then unexcommunicated and excommunicated. The Menace. The, the Menace. Yeah, he dies and was replaced by Eutychius, so now the Bishop of Constantinople is a clean slate. So it's a good way to find reconciliation. And they were able to refocus on their original goal of setting an ecumenical council. Once again, Vigilius pushed for a council held in Italy, or at least in the West, but Justinian goes, nope, um, we're going to go ahead and plan for Constantinople. Because, of course. Now, attempting to prepare for the council, Vigilius thought it would be a great idea to summon three Western bishops and three Eastern bishops to come together before the council and meet with him and sort of sort out the main details to better lead the direction of the council. It makes sense. It seems like a fairly straightforward idea. Justinian denied him this. In fact, it started to look very much like there was going to be no Western bishops in attendance at all at this council. And we know how that goes. That's not a good thing when it comes to the orthodoxy of what Rome wants. No, it just starts doing, like, dueling councils or whatever. Exactly, exactly. That's what ends up happening, and they end up, like, trying to mutually excommunicate one another, and it's never good. And it leads to a lot of fighting. So Vigilius is like, hang on, this is not what's supposed to happen. And he's fed up. And he decides, fine, I'm not going to attend the council. Instead, he prepares a document called the First Constitutum on May 14, 553. And in his First Constitutum, Vigilius condemns the writing of Theodore of Mopsuestia again, some of Theodoret's writings as anathema, but clarifies that neither of these men themselves were to be condemned as heretics, and that Ivas of Edessa got a full pass. In this all, he's going, look, okay. You can anathematize the writings of these two men, not the men themselves, and not the third guy. He sent this document to Justinian, and since it's not what Justinian wanted in full, he just chucks it out the window. He's like, I don't care. I don't care what you say. This isn't what I want. This isn't going to happen at the council. So he doesn't present it at the council or anything. He just chucks it out. No, nope, don't care what you say, Pope man. Especially since it also condemned the council for proceeding without the Pope and forbade the council to continue. So it's not likely that Justinian was ever going to read it to the council. Because it basically says, you guys shouldn't be here. Stop now. That's not what Justinian wants. But the council does go ahead. And this is the church's fifth ecumenical council. But because Pope Vigilius refuses to go, we're going to give that council its own episode next week and look at the actual details and just cover right now what's relevant to Vigilius. Because even though he's not there and he's protesting the whole thing, it becomes very relevant to Vigilius. When Vigilius decided he was going to boycott the council, Justinian's patience for this pope who keeps changing his mind ran out. 
A large part of this was that around the same time, the ongoing fight with the Ostrogoths over control of Italy had come to a conclusion, and Justinian had won, so now he doesn't have to worry about what's going on in the West. They are now fully under his control. Italy is back in the empire, and so he doesn't really have to keep Western sensibilities on side to help invasion efforts, because it's done. Okay, I've won. So now I don't really have to worry about courting you politically. He also decides that he didn't really need the Pope to be selling support for the Empire, because again, he's won, it's done. So during the seventh session of the Council on May 26th, Justinian committed the most effective character assassination that he could possibly think of. He's done with this Pope man. He's like, I am going to bring you down. So... He reveals to the council all of his secret correspondence with the Pope. All of those letters where the Pope had promised to recondemn the three chapters at a later date when tensions weren't so high. All of the secret documents signed by the Pope dated from between 547 and 550. So the Pope, who is currently sitting in opposition of the council, and making a display of refusing to condemn the chapters looks like a total and utter hypocrite because he's promised to do exactly that later in secret. So now everyone's seeing his letters, and it completely shatters all of Vigilius's credibility. The same pope that skimmed by the arrest, the deposition, the exile, and the death of his predecessor got away with literal murder the Pope who had already caused the Catholic Church such chaos that had to be retracted, now is having all of his dirty laundry aired to the entirety of the Church. It's not good. No. And they're all horrified. And Justinian is feeling fat and sassy, so then he orders the council to strike Vigilius's name from the diptychs. Oh, gasp, the diptychs are here. And yeah, and Vigilius is no longer on them. And then he personally officially breaks communion with the Pope. And he makes it very clear that he's, he's breaking communion with Vigilius personally, not the actual see of Rome. So it's cited as non sedem sed sedentum, which is not the see, but the one who sits in it. So basically, this man, I will no longer hold communion with this man. All of you from Rome, we're still good, but this man... Look at what a traitor he is. He's duplicitous. He's scheming. Remember all of that? Let's just excommunicate that guy. It's all looking pretty bad for the Pope. And for just a little bit of time, Justinian delayed the publication of his condemnation until July. So for about like two, two and a half months, he, he doesn't let the rest of the church know this. And in the interim, he has Vigilius placed under a strict house arrest. And all of the entourage he has with him is either imprisoned or in the Liber Pontificalis, it's even suggested that some of his supporters who were with him were sent to the mines. Ooh, to the mines. No one goes there anymore. Yeah, we haven't seen that in a long time. So it is bad. And Vigilius is done. Totally done. Shattered reputation. Shattered power. Shattered man. There is no rehabilitation coming for him. And he is now entirely and completely under the emperor's thumb. And we can't be entirely sure what sort of treatment he was given under house arrest. 
but we can hazard that it was probably pretty brutal, considering that what he did with his time was to publish a series of retractions on all of his previous positions, citing, like, oh, it's okay to make retractions, because look, even St. Augustine did it, so, um, I'm just gonna backtrack on everything that I have already said. No, I'm not being treated poorly. No, I'm not being pressured by, by the imperial power. I am just, uh, naturally coming to a different conclusion than what I fought for before. You know. These retractions culminated in two important pieces of writing. The first was from December 8th of 553, written to the Bishop of Constantinople, Eutychius, confessing to having been deceived by Satan into separating from the bishops of the council and issuing excommunications on the patriarch. So, I'm sorry I did that. That was bad of me. I don't excommunicate anyone. In this letter, he also excommunicated his papal nuncio, Pelagius, which is not very nice. Pelagius had turned away from Vigilius when all of those secret letters had been made public, and now he was being excommunicated for it while being jailed in a monastery for being there with Vigilius. So he's not winning on either accounts. And, surprise, surprise, he's going to be our next pope. So <laughs> we're going to leave him excommunicated and in jail and see how that happens. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting story as well. Yeah, definitely. The second piece of writing was a second constitutum, issued on February 23rd of 554, in which Vigilius cancels his first constitutum. He accepts the canons of this council, the second council of Constantinople. He undoes his defense of the three chapters and condemns anyone who would continue to defend him. He says, Whatever is brought forward or anywhere discovered in my name in defense of the three chapters is now nullified. So now he's giving Justinian exactly what he wants. He's condemning the three chapters in whole. He's not defending them anymore. How can he? He's literally in prison and nobody wants to take any of his words seriously. He keeps going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, and now he's just done. Mm -hmm. So having recanted all of his resistance, he was finally given permission to leave Constantinople in the spring of 555 in a pragmatic sanction issued by Justinian telling him, not just like, I'm releasing you from prison, but, oh, you know, you need to go and attend the civil affairs of Rome, so it's time for you to go. But Vigilius will never make it back to Rome. He died of gallstones. Oh. Yeah. Malady of the stones, as it's called. Gallstones? Just get that thing taken out, bro. Uh, well, you know, he's been in house arrest for a very long time, and he's not been treated well. I'm sure they're not just going to give him some surgery. I assume ancient whatever medieval times here their surgery for gallstones was not as good as it is now i mean even if they had one it would probably kill you anyways so he died of gallstones on june 7th of 555 in syracuse his body was brought back to rome but because of how intensely angry the people of rome were with him for everything that he had done he was not going to be buried in saint peter's Oh, where does he get to be buried? In the trash? Well, it's debated, actually. They're not quite sure. 
The Oxford Dictionary of the Popes claims that he was buried at the San Marcello on the Via Solarium, but the Catholic Encyclopedia says it was at San Silvestro, which is also on the Via Solaria, so he's somewhere on the Solarian Road. We're just not quite sure where. However, much later on, his remains will be removed from wherever they are and, and moved into the original Basilica of St. Peter's in an altar that was dedicated to Pope Sylvester and another later Pope will also be buried there, Pope Hadrian IV. So the inscription on the altar says this, Altar of Pope St. Sylvester with the sepulcher of Vigilius and Adrian IV. His original epitaph was also moved here to be preserved, and it reads, quote, Perceiving the destruction of war, resounding with waves and fortifications, I, Vigilius, most holy pope, preserved those of the populace who were shaking with fear, as well as public liberty breaking the chains of my flock and saving them with the sword, smiting with my arm. I recalled you to enough piety that you evaded this bodily peril. To me, however, it was more important to encourage the well-being of your soul. I supported the power of the church, fallen away by shipwreck. Festered by the perfidy of the world, my sails were torn. It's a very uh, dramatic tombstone. Yeah. But that is the wild story of Vigilius. It went on several roller coaster hills in maybe a few swoop turns. Swings and roundabouts, peaks and valleys. Mm-hmm. And now we have to figure out exactly how we're going to rate him. Papatum infallium. So I'm going to quote Eamon Duffy here again. The Vigilius affair dealt a series of shattering blows to the papacy. The prestige and leadership gained for Rome over the previous century had been frittered away. The papacy's reputation dragged it through the mire, and the action of Vigilius cast long shadows. That says it all, really. He was forced into capitulation to the emperor on the three chapters issue. He was literally dragged out of sanctuary and then held prisoner in Constantinople for eight years. There is no prestige and power of the papacy at this time. And the tensions in the Western Church are worse than ever. And with his death, the church is in an awful position. So this is a pope who I am giving no more than a zero to. Yeah, that's, no, he's not very infallium here. There is no infallium happening, and there is really little papatum. <laughs> yeah, it's a zero. The last pope to receive a zero in this category was Sosimus, and they're the only two in the entire history of our podcast to do that. So that feels very appropriate. Sosimus also sucked. A zero. Fructus prohibitive. Now this is going to be the opposite, because... He's going to win all his points here. He plotted and participated in the overthrow and murder of his successor. He directly or indirectly murdered a pope. I mean, that's almost a full 10 right there. Yeah, I mean, I could say very little else and we could just call it there. But from the Liber Pontificalis account, he also literally and directly murdered someone, this widow's son, with kicks and blows after marrying his niece to him. And he also killed his notary, so 
he may have directly murdered two people on top of the whole Pope thing. He's just straight up murdering everybody. He went back and forth theologically and caused nothing but chaos. And with the emperor, um, he condemned the three chapters. And even after a retraction, he secretly made promises to recondemn them. Like, he is ambitious, schemer, plotter, liar, murderer. It is a 20. There's... Yeah. Do you want to argue for anything lower? Cause no, I, if anything, I would bump it up to like a 22. I would have just write a note that I, I'm not actually going to give him a 22, but I'm going to say if Fry argues for an additional two points. Yeah, we have a note of that. Secular Rai Impactum. The whole time that Vigilius is Pope, Rome is under siege. And if he made efforts to send release, they get intercepted. That's not necessarily his fault, but he definitely doesn't have much influence over Rome at all. When they kidnap him and put him on a boat, they're going, Your pestilence go with you! Your famine go with you! You're the worst! I mean, they don't like him at all. He plotted and betrayed the Empress. He plotted with and betrayed the Emperor. And then he gets it back in full. So that's not good secular impact. He's a thorn in the side of the Empire, and he's not useful at all, so he has no positive secular impact. A zero! It's a zero. Zosimus also got a zero in this category, but so did Marcellinus and Marcellus and Pontian. Sometimes they don't have good secular impact. Yeah, and he had terrible secular impact. Fossium Sanctus. Let's see if he can win some points with his face. Okay, show it to me. Okay, so I am going to show you, I have two versions of this picture because we're getting into an area where, for whatever reason, no one's uploaded a good quality of these images, and then people enhance them to try and make them better. Internet, do better. Do better. So, <laughs> that one has a fold in it. <laughs> Uh, there are going to be several that have folds in them or like cracks in the tile. But yeah, so it's been enhanced and we can we can base this off the enhanced one because otherwise we have nothing. The enhanced one looks like it's still made for ants, but it is definitely like a weird airbrush quality version. It is, but it he has a very distinctive face shape and stuff. So it's very much like a bird skull. It is like a bird skull. Yes, very much so. And he looks like the kind of guy that you would expect to be scheming and plotting and doing shitty things. You don't have a bird skull without giving the lizard brain a little, like, no, that guy's bad. Yeah, it's it's definitely, um, he definitely looks like a villain. Mm -hmm. And And even his expression is kind of like, hmm, you know, and it's just, he looks like he should look, you know, we're, we're not, we're not being fooled by his... Like he's not deceptively innocent looking and whatnot. Yeah, I I can't. I think it's appropriate for him, so I have to give him a good score on this. So I'm going to give him a seven. Okay. What do you want to give him? I just think it it he looks like I expected him to look. I also want to point out that his beard is really short. So if they were pulling him off that altar by that, that would suck. So he he's the kind of person that. Now that I've seen his face, I can totally picture him doing all the things that he did. If I were to make his life into a movie, I could see this man running around and doing those things. Yeah. Seven, I'll match your seven, yeah. All right, so he'll get a 14, and when that gets calculated out, 
he gets a 3.5. Not so much because he's hot, but so much because he looks like he's awful. (laughs) Although, I did recently go, I was getting ahead in the research, and I did recently find the Pope we may go for as the hot Pope. (laughs) He also totally looks like a vampire, but we'll get there in time. It's so different than all of the other ones. I was like, whoa, what is this dude? So um, I'm going to send you a couple other images. This is one. It's the bad image that we usually have, but it's in... Got extra stuff. It's got extra stuff. It's surrounded by better art. He also definitely looks like a villain here. He has the Frollo scheming face. I would have scored him highly on this one. It's good. It's good. And then I just have a picture of the Second Council of Constantinople. And even though he wasn't there, someone has painted this, and this is Vigilius reading out why they shouldn't continue, and he's trying to forbid them. No one really has faces in this one. This is like a scribbled charcoal painting. I don't know. I don't know. Charcoal and paint are two different things, but it's definitely like like a court drawing where it's the idea of people and not actual people. Totally. That's exactly what it is. It's like if you took a court drawing and then you added a little bit of impressionism to it. So, yeah, there's that. So he gets a 3.5 in that category. Tempus Pontificus. March 29th of 537 to June 7th of 555. This man was Pope for 18 years. That's a long time. It's so long, and he gets a score of 4.5 for that, and we have not had a score that high since Damasus, and Sylvester, and prob- and Peter, of course, and oh, Zephyrinus. That is a very lengthy and very solid time length, but most of that he spent in captivity, so. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! What do you think? Mm, I would assume he's not a saint, and if he is, I have questions. He is not a saint. I would also have questions, so he gets no bonus point for that. Which brings us to his total score. He gets a 28, which is almost entirely scandal, but it's still pretty good. It's a good score overall in terms of Because he is one of those popes who is not good, but is definitely interesting. So then I have to ask you a question. Is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough for a papal bull? He's not papally enough, but he is pizzazzy enough. This is one of those stories that people don't know that you would want to tell them. Because it's very interesting and entertaining. And he definitely leaves a legacy. It's not a good one, but he definitely leaves a legacy here. We're going to be dealing with the three chapters controversy for a long time, partially because of how he handled it. And so to me, this one's, this is a given that he gets it because he is one of our notably bad popes. So are you in agreement? Yeah. Like I said, he's pizzazzy. He's not Popey, but he is pizzazzy. And he has left that legacy, so congratulations, Vigilius. The only good thing to probably ever happen in your life is you are now papal bullworthy. That brings us to our thank yous, and we have patrons to thank. So we are going to thank David from the Siecla podcast. 
who is now absolved of his temporal punishments. Ego te absolvo. We will also like to thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor. And when you hear this episode, you will also be hearing it right after we've gotten home from sound education. So thank you to everyone at that. We haven't actually gone yet, but we know it's going to be a good time. So we'll thank them in advance. Thank you for continuing to listen. And with that, we can say thank you to all of you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.